So again, 1 John 2 verse 18, and we'll read up to chapter 3 verse 3. Children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That is, the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is God's word. For those of you with children, and let them watch the occasional cartoon, or depending how late you stay up the night before, three or four cartoons in the morning. I wonder if you guys are ever amazed when a cartoon comes on for your childhood. And it comes on, you think, oh, you know, you want to show your child, look, this is what mom and dad used to watch when we were kids. Or... Now, I'm not too keen on modern cartoons, but when an old Looney Tunes pops across the dial and you, you see all of a sudden, you don't remember it from before, but you see, wait, is that a drunk bum talking with Elmer Fudd? <laughs> you know, and you're surprised. What is this? What is happening here? Or some Al Capone-looking guy, you know, mowing down Daffy Duck with a Tommy gun? You're thinking, well, how did this, was this really part of my childhood growing up? And the answer is yes. I understand. But believe it or not, worse uh, than inappropriate inebriation is fear. There's a lot of fear in some older cartoons. Uh, but no cartoon spooks the sleep out of a child like Scooby-Doo. All right, I mean, yes, I, I grant you there is an adorable dog with a lisp. But when you watch this, and you got to have, I, I will admit, in fairness to everyone else, I mean, you got to have kids to realize this. You're thinking, oh, Scooby-Doo, come on. 
You probably haven't watched it in a while if you don't have children. If you watch it, cute dog list. But any villain who showed up in Scooby-Doo is absolutely startling and terrifying. The the secret was these villains, they never jumped out at you. In fact, they were always motionless. Remember this for like five or six seconds. And only the viewer noticed them. Until finally they jumped out at Scooby and Shaggy. You know, and then, zoinks! You know, they went along. (laughs) So, 1 John has some Scooby-Doo verses. I like to call Scooby-Doo verses. You're reading along and all of a sudden, it's frightening. Like this morning, you start out with, children, it is the last hour, right? It's just, ah! the Antichrist is coming. Oh, it, it's worse. Antichrists have come, right? People are leaving the church. Churches have people inside of them trying to deceive you. These are all things we find here in this passage. Yet, John will assure us and comfort us as we are confronted with some spooky realities. And I'm going to be honest with you this morning. This is likely going to be a two-parter. Uh, there, were, there, are just, there are too many important spooks and too many important covers, uh, comforts to cover this morning, so I'm, I'm, I'm breaking this down into two. When you got Antichrist, you got people leaving a church, you wonder if they're Christians, all kinds of things like that. you got to go with, it's got to be a two-parter. So we're going to start this morning with Antichrist. Favorites is what the worship team was telling me earlier this week as they were looking up songs for, for worship that might fit with the message. The first thing that came up was Antichrist. <laughs> I thought, what are we going to sing about this week? Um, and it's a good question. And they're gonna, they have some actually great songs picked out. This term, Antichrist, is mentioned only four times in the Bible, and every time by the Apostle John. Here in verse 18, also verse 22, chapter 4, verse 3. In 2 John 7, the Antichrist is going to be the human embodiment of evil. Now, he has been wrongly assigned to various figures in history and will continue to be wrongly assigned to various figures in history until only a very few will assign to it the right person. And it will be a small group of Christians because everyone else will be deceived. But you know through history this has happened for centuries and centuries and and actually sects of Christianity and cults of Christianity have been formed by people thinking this is the Antichrist. He's coming here. He's coming then. This is the person. So we just had an election here in Cayman. I'm not going to say anything else about that. (laughs) But I know like where where, uh, I originally hail from, the United States, is that we run on a two-party system, and if your party loses, all right, and the other party's uh, presidential candidate becomes president, automatically <laughs> that person becomes the potential antichrist. All right, like yes, it, it's Bill Ronald Reagan has been George W. George H. W. Bush, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama, all have been labeled antichrist. In fact, Ronald Reagan, his thing was that I think it was Ronald Walter Reagan. But uh, each of his names had six letters in it. So, you know. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. But even now, putting a V Antichrist aside, even now, which is how we know this is the last hour, there are these little Antichrists, John tells us, running around wreaking havoc against God's church and opposing every cause for Christ. And the average person... 
I think I do too, wants answered, who are these people? Who are these people? How can you tell who is an antichrist? Do they get matching t-shirts? You know, do they, do they have like an annual convention of debauchery in Las Vegas? The best place to begin is here, 1 John 2, um, where John's very clear statement in verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. You could summarize the whole dividing line of what we believe as Christians in one doctrinal statement. Jesus Christ. You thought of Jesus Christ as a name, but it's also a statement about beliefs. It's a doctrinal statement. So let's look at it together first. Let's, let's start here. Jesus. We don't often think about what is Jesus, what does this name mean, what does it signify? Jesus comes from a shortened version of the Hebrew name translated Joshua. The finished product is the Hebrew Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. You translate that first into Greek, then transliterate it into Latin, and you get Jesu, Jesu, and then of course, Jesus. Jesu, Jesus. So when Jesus' arrival on earth is announced to nearby shepherds in Bethlehem, he is announced as a Savior. Yahweh saves. And then in the same verse, Luke 2.11, is announced as the Christ. Yahweh saves. He is the Christ. Through those two terms, Yahweh saves and the Christ, even common folks like shepherds would know, ah, this is big. The Christ. And here's the second term. Jesus the Christ. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew term Messiah. Both of which, Christ and Messiah, essentially mean anointed or the anointed one. This is important. You're going to learn a little here, okay? So put your thinking caps on. There are three groups of leaders in the Old Testament. Three groups of leaders in the Old Testament who are commanded to be anointed and so set apart to lead God's people. Prophets, priests, and kings. They are called to lead in those ways. And in fact, if they mix up how they're supposed to lead, it's trouble. It's big time trouble. The first king, in fact, loses his kingship and ultimately dies because he gets that mixed up. Prophets led by speaking on God's behalf. To call people back to faithfulness to their end of the deal. God made a deal with people. called a covenant. He says, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to initiate this. I want to love you in these very tangible ways. And in turn, I'm asking you to respond by loving me in these tangible ways. Prophets called people back to that. They spoke on God's behalf to call people back. Priests led by standing between God and man. They would essentially receive man's apologies for sin, called sacrifices. Men and women would come to an altar. They'd say, I'm very sorry for my sin. They showed that through a sacrifice, animal sacrifice, and offered it to God, signifying that it cost something to be forgiven, as well as it cost something to sin. Kings led 
by ruling and organizing people in a godly fashion so that people could feel free to worship God. To rule and organize people in a godly fashion so that people could worship the Lord. Each leader group had its ideal, its failing, and its promise. All right, so the ideal prophet for the Jewish people was Moses, the ideal priest, Aaron, the ideal king, David. All three were imperfect and failed. Moses' key failure was a failure to trust God to do exactly as God told him. God told him to strike a rock once, get some water. Moses decided to do it twice. He didn't do exactly what God had said. Aaron's failure was people-pleasing. People said, ah, we don't know about this God we've been worshiping. While Moses is gone, Aaron, you're a priest. Let's build another God together, a golden calf. Aaron said, okay, here's your God. David's failure was giving in to the lust of power and possession. Seeing a woman as a possession, taking her and then killing off her husband, with the power he had as king. Isn't it, to me, this is interesting. Something I learned this week. In each case, notice, each failed precisely in how they were supposed to lead. You ever notice that? Moses speaking God's word, but so people could obey exactly as God told them. That's exactly how Moses failed. Aaron called to intercede between God and man. But Aaron goes, no, I'm just going to be on man's side. Please him David, given this authority to love people well, to to sacrificially lead them well, uses that power to take from the people. Each failed in the way they were supposed to lead. I don't think that's an accident, friend. In fact, I think God wished to highlight the contrast between their failure and Christ's sufficient success in all of these roles. Now, where they failed, Jesus Christ succeeds sufficiently and for all time. We're going to see that in a minute. Each leader group was also assigned a future promise that there would be a prophet greater than Moses. Deuteronomy 18, 5, 7 through 18 as well. Sorry, Deuteronomy 18, 15, 17 through 18 as well. The priestly line would continue, Exodus 40, 13 through 15. And the Davidic line of kings would carry on, 2 Samuel 7, 16. But you look around today, if you, if you visit Israel or, or, or know a, a Jewish person, Orthodox Jew, there's no Jewish prophet, there's no Jewish priest, there's no Jewish king, even though God promised it. Jewish people are waiting for a Messiah, a Christ, but who has already come and now reigns in heaven. Because the promise of the Anointed One is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke the words of God as an anointed prophet. And, and there's so many of them. And my encouragement to you is to go back and look at them and look at all of these examples. I can't give you more than one. Because this is part of the whole point this morning. is to start to look and behold Jesus as the Christ. But Jesus spoke the words of God as the anointed prophet. We see it in Luke 4, 21 and 22. As Jesus announces himself to the world, arrives on the scene, gives his inaugural address. Jesus began to say to them, after reading about essentially being the Messiah, being the Christ from Isaiah, 
Today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And what happened? All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Prophet. Later on in that same chapter, verse 32, they were astonished at his teaching. For his word, unlike others, had authority. Why? Because he was the anointed Christ. He fulfilled perfectly the office of a prophet to guide and to lead people through his words. Secondly, Jesus rules perfectly and totally as a king would. So many examples of this, of Jesus' kingship. I'm just give you one from Acts chapter 1 after Jesus has risen from the dead. It's just about to ascend, but hasn't yet. The disciples had come together and they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it was not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but... This is way of saying, yes, but I'm just not going to tell you because I don't want you to get the wrong idea of what the kingdom is. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem is where they were. Judea is the next province out. Samaria is the next sort of area, kind of the podunk rural areas, and then the ends of the earth. It's like this concentric circles, outward. In other words, Jesus rules perfectly and totally. He already tells his disciples, you're going to be preaching. You're going to be telling people. And this kingdom of mine will be ever expanding until it covers the whole earth. He's a king that rules totally and perfectly. Jesus also lives as the perfect man and God go between. As a priest. We're told in Hebrews 4, 14-16, this, Since we have a a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He's the perfect, great high priest because he is God. He is in the heavens, so he's up there with God. Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but because he's human, has been in every way tempted, just as we are, yet was without sin. So in heaven, God also experienced every temptation known to man but didn't sin. So he's the perfect go-between. As verse 16 says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, how does Jesus being the Christ, the perfect fulfillment of all the ways that God called human beings to lead, how does this give us comfort and assurance? Because we need to see that Jesus Christ is enough. He has enough to save us and to keep us even in the midst of opposition. Even in the midst of much opposition, which doesn't just occur outside the church, but even in a church. Notice in the final section of our reading, this morning, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 3, it's all about seeing Jesus clearly. Did you see that? Notice the visual phrases repeated. Verse 28, He appears. Chapter 3, verse 1, see the love. Verse 2, appeared. Verse 2 again, he appears. Verse 3, we shall see him. What we'll see at the end, I hope, this weekend next, is how this last section, seeing Jesus clearly, Jesus Christ clearly, will tie all the hard stuff we go through together and help us, comfort us and assure us. I'll say it this way in a nutshell this morning. 
You can receive assurance and comfort through a clear view of Jesus Christ and his sufficiency. A clear view of Jesus Christ and that he is enough for life and living. Some people sit in the church pews and participate in church life who don't possess a clear view of Jesus. And we see this in this passage this morning. Such folks, this is a hard word from John, right? Are literally anti-Christ. But it's here in the Bible. I gotta preach it. They don't really believe that what Jesus spoke as a prophet is sufficient. His ability to bridge God and man is really enough that his claim to a throne of an ever-expanding kingdom is actually bogus. There are two general ways people tend to oppose Jesus. Subtract from him or add to him. Let's talk about subtractors first. Antichrists who are subtractors. uh, Atheists or agnostics who openly admit to rejecting Jesus outright. It's pretty clear. Right? They just have nothing to do with Jesus and even oppose his work very, very clearly, obviously, without any kind of guile. But most antichrists are trickier than that. How do we know that? John tells us. This prefix anti in front of Christ, anti, can mean either against, against or in the place of. Okay, so, so it's an opponent of Christ or someone who means to replace Christ. In other words, it's an obvious opposing adversary right, who looks like the bad guy, is obvious, or is the Antichrist a tricky counterfeit in the place of trying to replace Jesus, look like him, talk like him, sound like him? I think both. Both for a couple reasons. Verse 19 tells us, they went out from us. From us. Notice, he's talking about us as a church. Most antichrists carve out their niche in a church, which makes sense. If you're the devil and your goal is to deceive religious people, where do you set up shop? Where do you try to use people to deceive Christians and to to block their walk with Christ? A church. You use very charismatic, church-going people who look and talk like the real thing, like genuine Christians. We also know this, that it's both this opposing adversary but also tricky counterfeit because John uses the highest form of humor known to man, a pun. Um, John uses a pun, so I know it's biblical. It's right here, so it's the best form of humor, okay? He uses a play on words to infer both opposition, Antichrist opposes, and is a tricky counterfeit. I'm getting a little Greeky here, okay? So follow along with me. The word antichristos... Antichrist is connected to Christos, right? Related to Christos, Christ. And both derive from the Greek word creo, which is to anoint. Follow that again. Antichristo, Antichrist, Christo, creo, to anoint, which is used of Christians in verse 20. You have been anointed. In other words, John is saying, there are little play on words here like, ha ha, see how close they are. We wouldn't see that because we don't, we don't look at the Greek stuff. 
He's saying, though, pay attention because each of these things will look similar. They'll look alike. Antichrist will initially look like Christians, anointed by the Holy Spirit, who are following Christ. It's tricky. It's tricky. So, for example, the way they look very similar. Some people often say, maybe I'm not a Christian, but I'm a spiritual person. I'm a very spiritual person. And I don't mean 1 Corinthians 2 spiritual. In other words, I believe in a higher power, but no one else is going to tell me the nature or character of that higher power, the nature and character of God. That's the original temptation, right, in Genesis 3, in the garden, to be your own God. This all starts by choosing a God of your own making, in your own image. So I don't go to church. I choose personal meditative practices. I'll even call it prayer. I might use feel-good love words that can transfer to any faith, but I don't subject myself to authority structures like the Bible, like pastors, like the church. And this fits with the modern preference of the Jesus in our own image. In fact, one of our community groups is fairly recently discussing Jesus as the Christ, prophet, priest, king, and what role of Jesus they most consistently relate to. Like, which one do you like to relate with the most? And what do you think they said? Prophet, priest, king. What do you think? Nearly everyone responded, priest, which makes sense. People prefer Jesus as a friend who can relate, who can sympathize, who can get between me and God and forgive so I don't have to experience all that hard stuff from God. We like Jesus as the one down here on earth, buddy Jesus. People often subtract from Jesus Christ the role of telling me what to do. Prophet. Or running my life. King. But friends, Jesus Christ is a package deal. When you receive one aspect of the Christ, you get truth and you get rulership bundled in. You get the bundle. All right, you may want just the internet, but you've got to get the phone in there and the whatever as well, you know? <laughs> so, some antichrists subtract from Jesus. I'm, I'm just a spiritual person. Some antichrists try to add to Jesus, thinking he's not enough. Jesus is not enough. These are adders. You have subtractors, you have adders. Adders <clears throat> freely use terms like Jesus, church, Holy Spirit, <clears throat> love him, the cross, redemption, resurrection, all the Christian words. But they also. Add in a lot of shoulds, ought tos, ideallys, alsos, and worse, here's the worst faith, trust, belief in Jesus is good, but you gotta go further, you gotta add to, you gotta grow past, you gotta move on. It's dangerous. For instance, you, you gotta, no, it's not enough to have a Jesus, you have to have a certain kind of spiritual gift. And only God is in charge of handing out gifts. But you need to get this one. This is what merely makes you a, a better Christian, a more spiritual Christian. Or a sideshow focus. I like to call them sideshow focuses apart from Jesus. Right? Focus on, on this part of God. Let's just focus on this part of, of, of this verse over here. Or treating a person and their teachings with a similar weight as Jesus and his teaching. It's okay if you like a preacher. But then when you start to like follow them, they start to give them the same weight as Jesus and his teaching. You're adding. 
all of which is under the guise of if you really want to please God, if you really want to go to the next level, if you really wish to, to live the victorious, abundant, prosperous life, but when you see and keep on beholding Jesus and all his sufficiency as the prophet, the priest, the king who can and does save Jesus the Christ, you can more readily identify these folks. You can begin to understand when to pray patiently for them, when to confront them in their error, when to avoid them altogether, and when to kick them out of the church because they're hurting and hindering other people. That happens as you behold Jesus and see him as enough. He is the Christ. He is enough. Because antichrists try to look like Christ and Christians, we find them where churches meet, which leads to our second point, which is really our last point this morning. That's all I have time for. <clears throat> Viewing Jesus Christ and his sufficiency clearly helps you deal with people who leave the church of Jesus. Verse 19, read with me there. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they, are, that they all are not of us. The questions when we read, I think, that verse that come up are, why do people leave a church? What does it say about the person who leaves? Oof, okay. Why people leave a church? Let me talk first about the good reasons, all right? There's a need and calling elsewhere. All right, so Sunrise Community Church has grown. As we've grown not only in breadth, but as individuals have really grown in depth, praise the Lord, they might sense God's Spirit telling them to lead or use their gifts elsewhere where it's needed especially in newer, smaller churches. Or they learn their gifts and their, their makeup fit the vision of a different but equally Christ-sufficient church. Where Christ has preached as sufficient and enough for life and living. Usually that's preceded by asking your leaders to pray and having a kind of a exit meeting with a pastor or with an elder. Because a brother and his family did this with me recently, it allowed us as a church, to take the time to publicly thank them, to honor them, and to send them out with a blessing, which was awesome. But when someone leaves without talking to a pastor or elder, it leads to confusion, leads to awkwardness, sometimes pain for both parties and others involved. It's important. So if you are here this morning and you have left another fellowship, please respect that at some point I'm going to make an effort ask you, hey, have you talked to that pastor? I know most of the pastors of the, the little bit larger churches and I are like, have you talked with them? Have you spoken to that person? I think it's the right thing to do if you sense a need in calling elsewhere. Another good reason is because the church has departed from, quote, what you have heard from the beginning, in verse 24. He talks about what you have heard from the beginning grounding you, but when a church departs from that, that's a good reason to depart from the church. The church and its pastors stray from sound teaching that Jesus Christ is sufficient for life, living, and the life to come. And you discern this through the anointing of the Holy Spirit who has taught you how to know and to discern sound teaching, which is what one of this next session is all about here in verses 24 through uh, verse 27. I know for a fact that a number of you, a group of you, left another church 
You're part of this fellowship for this reason. Uh, because you recognize through a knowledge of sound teaching and using the Holy, Holy Spirit who is in you to recognize a very strange teaching being added to Jesus and being proclaimed as necessary, as to be focused on, as to be lifted up. And that's wrong. It can really distract and harm and ruin people. So there are good reasons why people leave a church. There are poor reasons people leave a church. Number one, they want to subtract Jesus Christ from their life. We talked about this earlier. People who say, I just realized I don't know Jesus. I don't want to know Jesus. I want to leave. They're just very clear about it. Or this, you know, the spiritual people as well. Well, I'm just kind of tired of, kind of tired of church. I'm going to be spiritual. I'll do my own thing. Okay. I'm not going to go back to church. <clears throat> it's dangerous. Um, number two, I know this is kind of a long reason, but bear with me. When people unsuccessfully aim to change church by making an immediate addition rather than being an immediate addition. Here's what I mean. When a church leadership refuses rightly to give in about teaching, maybe vision, uh, what they believe, if you refuse to give in to even influential personalities, such people sometimes leave. And often, because of their magnetism and their personality, others will follow out the door. And John actually says, this happens here. And people make it plain because they followed others out the door. Because they insisted on additions to church while refusing to accept additions onto themselves or being an addition for others. You know what I mean by that? I want to change the church. The church should be different. The church should be different. The church should be different. But they didn't want to have something added to them. They didn't want to change themselves or be an addition to the church. They want to serve and love. And let me tell you, friends, I know our church is not perfect. We have additions to make. But I think the wrong attitude is I want to change things right away. No, serve. Be an addition to the church. God God will shape those other things. Such a person often takes long breaks from the church or goes from church to church, never satisfied and never stopping. It's incredibly dangerous. And John says plainly, they were not of us. How many of you guys have witnessed this happen? Someone you know, someone you love, someone you thought was a Christian just gets just ups and leaves. It's hard. They, just, they, don't, they don't even necessarily go to another church or stick with another church. It's, it's just a sad, troubling, disconcerting thing. What does it say about the person who leaves? How do you deal with it? How, how do you sort of mentally understand it? Have they lost their salvation? Have they lost their standing in Christ? Just to go? No. Because the problem is you can't lose your salvation. I'll show you in three places. John tells us here, salvation is a promise made by God of eternal life. Verse 25. A promise of eternal life. You cannot lose an eternal promise from God unless he's a liar. Jonah 2.9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation never belongs to you. It belongs to Him. You can't lose something that doesn't belong to you. It would have to be that God lost us. You know what I mean? Did God lose them, those who go out? No. Jesus says in John 10, verse 28, and a number of other places, I give them eternal life, those who trust in Me. 
They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And thirdly, this is John's whole point in verse 19. They proved they were not a genuine family member of Jesus' church because they went out. He says, yeah, they were here in the church, but they were never of us. And they made that plain because they left. Never to return to church. Never satisfied with church. They just, friends, it means some of you are Christians. It means some of you are not. The good news is you can place your trust in Jesus as your all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king at any time. At any time. Even now, you can trust in him as being enough to save you, to rescue you, to keep you for life. All the way through to eternal life. This is true, though, of any church, but also in ours. Within this visible church, there is an invisible church. God knows each of our hearts. Um, Jesus once said that the religious people around him were like kids playing a game. You can play the church game and you convince a lot of people when you do it. But God knows your heart. He knows, friends. If you haven't trusted him to rule your life, you haven't trusted him to be enough to rescue you and save you, you haven't trusted him to be enough to tell you what to do in your life, and then there are those who have proved the authenticity of their faith by continuing on with the church of Jesus all the way to eternal life. Is that you, friends? Maybe that's you. In the midst of Antichrist posing as Christians on TV, and even in churches, as people, even within the church, try to draw you out of fellowship as teachings that, appeal, uh, <clears throat> that sound appealing are added to Jesus, how can you receive comfort and last among such confusion and opposition Keep looking, seeing, and drinking in Jesus Christ as enough. He's enough. Read about Jesus in the gospel as the Christ. Talk about it with other people. Encourage them. Sing about him as being sufficient, the only one who is needed. His perfect life's enough to go between you and God as you suffer and ask for help. His rulership is enough to lead you into his perfect plan for your life. And his words are enough to change you. His enoughness allows you to be called a son. And as you keep looking to his enoughness, you get to become more like the son until one day you will become like Jesus because you'll see him, see him, see him as he is. Let's pray. Uh, These are some hard things that John brings up. The reality of antichrists and them camouflaging themselves and being in churches and the people leaving churches and what's, what's the deal there, Lord? We thank you that you give us insight. But they're not necessarily easy insight, Lord. I pray more than anything for anyone here who's playing the game, who's playing the church game, and who knows it, just in their hearts. So many of us have been there before. But at some point, we decided, you know, I'm tired of pretending, yeah, like I'm not in my head at Jesus' words and what the pastor's saying. I'm tired of saying, yeah, singing Jesus is my king. But I don't really let him rule my life. I make decisions by myself and what's best for me. For those of us who think, you know, Jesus 
he's really not enough to rescue me. I have to control my own life. I have to make things happen. He can't make me feel better as a priest. Father, I pray for such folks here this morning. I pray they wouldn't leave us, but instead trust Jesus. Trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, who is sufficient for all of life and living. Help us fix our eyes on this Jesus. Sing about him, read about him, talk about him, love him. It's his name we pray. Amen.